Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowley. In today's episode, we'll be running through the many redistributions that are taking place across Australia right now. My guest today needs no introduction. I welcome back to the podcast, ABC Chief Election Analyst, Anthony Green. Hello, Anthony. Good afternoon, or good evening, or whatever when people are listening. While we've now entered a quiet period between elections in Australia, um, that provides space for quite a lot of redistribution processes to redraw the electoral maps at federal, state, and local levels. By my count, I think there's about seven or eight happening right now in various stages. The Australian Electoral Commission is about to commence the process of redrawing the federal electorates in three states. New South Wales and Victoria are each going to lose a seat while Western Australia will gain a seat. Anthony, I'm sure everyone is asking you this question. Which seats do you think are going to get abolished? Well, to be honest, I think the the abolition of seats is not as important as people think it is. If you abolish a seat, and this is going to be definitely the case in New South Wales, you can abolish a seat, but it's the flow-on effects from abolishing a seat which has the impact uh, and I think we'll talk about New South Wales last because it's the most complex of the redistributions. I think there's also going to be a Northern Territory federal redistribution start in February next year, which will be interesting because the growth of um, Indigenous enrolment with the run-up to the referendum will probably is going to impact on on that redistribution. But uh, that's uh, for one for next year. But at the moment, we've got the three. And we should also just state for people to get um, conspiratorial about these things. There's a formula in Section 24 of the Constitution which determines how states are represented in the House of Representatives, and it's done on the most recent population. There's a formula applied, and then the Electoral Commission makes a determination. But the determination is entirely determined by the legislation in the Constitution, and it's a simple change in numbers that results in WA gaining a seat and Victoria and New South Wales losing a seat and overall being one fewer. And indeed, that's why when the population estimates came out last month, we all knew with 100% certainty what was going to happen. It's just the commissioner had to actually apply that formula, which happened last week. Also, there's a date when he must do it. So he couldn't do it six weeks ago. He had to do it one year and one day after the House first met. So, yeah, there's this process that happens that, I mean, I asked you that question about what seat gets abolished, but really when you add a seat or you abolish a seat, almost every electorate has to be dramatically changed. A little like New South Wales electorates would have previously covered 147th of the state and now they cover 146th. And there is this sort of effect you see where you start in a corner and you work your way out and eventually you get to a point where a seat has changed so dramatically that it loses its identity, right? And that's the one that we arbitrarily say has been abolished or created. Um, but why don't we start then with Western Australia then as the smallest of the states being redistributed? What have you noticed with the population trends there? Well, the thing with both WA and Victoria they both had redistributions three years ago, Victoria gaining seat, Western Australia losing a seat. Now, they can't just revert to the old boundaries. There's a there's, you know, population change involved here. But Western Australia is getting a seat back. They abolished a seat called Stirling last time, uh, which was on the northern coastal part of Perth. That's not going to be recreated. The way that they draw boundaries is tend to start on the coast and work inwards. They'll probably draw O'Connor and Durack first and Forest. They're the three non-metropolitan seats in Western Australia. And that sort of establishes the boundary for the metropolitan area. And then they'll start drawing along the coast and the Swan. They'll draw Fremantle. They'll draw Curtin. They'll probably run up the coast. So they'll draw Moore and then Pierce. And they all have to shrink because there's a new seat being created. The quota is lower. And so what happens is once you draw all the seats along the coast, Somewhere inland in metropolitan Perth, there's room for a new seat. Whether that's north or south of the Swan depends on the boundaries you draw. 
And, you know, sometimes there's confusion over the name of a seat. You can draw 16 electorates in Western Australia and then just give them the name afterwards. And um, last time when they abolished Sterling, they could have abolished Cowan. It's the same seat that was drawn. It's just a matter of which name you attach. So sometimes things get overthought here. But I think in Western Australia, what you're going to see is a contraction of all the metropolitan seats and new one created somewhere on, on the West. One thing that I should specify the main condition about the redistribution is based on population. There must be within 10% of the average enrolment to the date of the redistribution, and there must be within 3.5% of the projected enrolment in three and a half years' time. And that's the much tighter restriction. It also means that, for instance, um, they can't recreate the seat of Pierce that existed four years ago. Uh, it's contracted towards the coast. Then it included both the northern suburbs of Perth and the Ellenbrook Corridor. They're both rapidly growing. You can't draw a seat in an area where all the population growth is. Sometimes they just have to split them. Yeah, we noticed that with the New South Wales state redistribution that a lot of the population growth in Sydney is concentrated in a handful of places, big housing estates. And some of those seats, if you tried to draw them to just contain a whole estate, would be too small a population now and too big a population in the near future. And they tried to split those areas up, but there's sometimes there's only so much of that you can do. And when I was looking the other day at the latest enrolment numbers, I was comparing them to numbers from last year that I'd used last time I looked at them. And unsurprisingly, in Melbourne, Perth and Sydney, you see the same trends, which is the outer suburbs, the areas that are newest are growing the quickest. So in Sydney and Melbourne, there's a bunch of electorates that are under quota because the quota has gone up, but they're catching up on the quota quite quickly. So I assume when we get projected numbers, like a bunch of those seats in Western Sydney, they'll still get buffeted by their neighbours, but they're actually going to be pretty close to where they should be. So just to summarise WA, there will be a new seat created somewhere in the east of Perth. Um, that's where all the population growth is on the southeast and the northeast. Probably, on, on, you know, whether it's north or south of the Swan will depend. What the political implications are is very difficult to determine um, because you just don't know where they'd be drawing. But I would imagine the Labor Party will try and draw three seats along the coast in the north of Perth, which makes it more feasible for them to win seats further east. In Victoria, again, because there was a redistribution three years ago and all the population estimates were upturned by COVID since then, there isn't a lot of variation but a seat has to be abolished. Again, they'll start probably with all the country electorates. You draw Gippsland first, you draw one and you draw Mallee. You have to sort of work your way around Ballarat and Bendigo, and then you hit the edge of the metropolitan area. Now, there's often one seat which extends from the metropolitan area into the rural areas. That's usually McEwen, but how that turns out this time, I don't know. But it's going to be a seat abolished somewhere in Melbourne. Is it east or west of the Yarra? On the current numbers there's been a bit of a slowdown of growth in northwest Melbourne because of COVID, because of the changes that, that, that lost all the immigration in that period. But I think the projected enrolments will see that even out. I think it's most likely a seat will disappear somewhere in eastern Melbourne with major implications. And once again, because they start drawing where there's nobody wanders into a map of Melbourne and say, let's draw an electorate around Ringwood is the first thing you do. You don't. You start where the geography is obvious. You draw along the bay. You draw along the Yarra. And if you do that, then all of the seats east of the Yarra, Kuyong, Melbourne Ports, all have to grow east. And as they grow east, they eventually hit the Dandenong. So a seat somewhere in between disappears. I think Hotham and Chisholm are the two electorates which 
don't have boundaries. They don't have a clear geographical boundary. And a seat is likely to disappear there somewhere, which name it is, I suspect probably Hotham is most likely. Because there's these general principles, right, with redistributions that apply to most of them, state, federal, local, which is you try and draw communities of interest. You try and draw in a way that's logical. And often, you know, you do sometimes draw along roads or various estates or things, but the big ones are mountain ranges, rivers, oceans, those kinds of things. You know, sometimes they have to cross the Yarra with an electorate, but you try and do it as little as possible, right? And in Sydney, you the same kind of thing. And so in Melbourne, that kind of eastern suburbs is this sort of big flat plain, right? There's roads everywhere that you can use for borders, but there's no real overarching boundaries in the way that you get with like Port Phillip Bay, you know, for example. Or Sydney is bounded in the north by the Hawkesbury River, on the west by the mountains. You've got Sydney Harbour, Georges River, Port Hacking. These are all very significant geographical dividers. And um, in Sydney, they also tend to follow class lines in a very strange way. And so there are clearly more obvious boundaries in part of Sydney. But then once you get past Parramatta or up into northwest Sydney, those obvious boundaries tend to disappear. And uh, it's the case that many redistributions, particularly for the states where there's many more electorates, you'll suddenly find there is one electorate which might be the last one they drew, which seems to have lots of bits and pieces. And, and sometimes it's just because they've drawn boundary after boundary after boundary and you get to the last five and you end up with one illogical electorate. But the only way to fix that would to be re- restart the process again, which is too difficult. They do their best, but sometimes the process of – it's a jigsaw and you're trying to fit everything together. You're trying to meet several criteria. You know, local government boundaries are also one of the more obvious things they tend to use. I grew up in Campbelltown and I remember as a kid, uh, where or MacArthur, what electorate I lived in, bounced around a little bit. And now that I understand these principles, it makes sense because it's the one part of Sydney that doesn't have any clear dividing lines, right? You drive along the Hume Highway. What's the point where there's a physical barrier where Sydney ends? You don't really get one. You just eventually the houses sort of thin out and that's it. And so if you've got half a quota left over in Sydney or half a quota left over in the country, you fix it by moving up and down there. And so ironically, the electorates, I mean, the electorates in MacArthur, where are actually over quota despite the quota being lifted, but they will probably be moved not so much because they're in need of extra population, but because that's the only way to move through between like the interface between Sydney and the country, right? I did some numbers and did a blog post on the New South Wales redistribution. I think the projected numbers were more important than the numbers I've used. But it could be a major redistribution. Now, some people got in contact with me and said, it's obvious a Sydney seat will disappear in the country. You know, Hume, which is an interface between the Sydney and country, isn't going to change because it's a seat in Sydney that has to disappear. Well, I think that'll be less obvious with the projected numbers. But secondly... In country New South Wales, there's a surplus on the north coast in seats like Cowper and Lyne. Um, Hunter and Patterson in the Hunter Valley are way over quota and they have to be fixed. And it's a real jigsaw to fix that because you can't push down into Sydney from there. That's going to affect New England and it's going to flow on and flow on. And there's a significant chance that instead of abolishing one seat is that they may abolish both a country and a city seat and create a new city seat at the same time. Um, Because of this geography, of you're trying to sort of squeeze this surplus in the north of the state, around the state. You may end up with Farrah doesn't include currently Broken Hill. But once you've fixed up a whole bunch of other things, 
you're shifting all the electorates around and you do it in such a, an exotic fashion that sometimes it's just easier to abolish electorate. And the city of Riverina, for instance, includes very little of the Riverina anymore. It's got the wrong name. In trying to fix everything else, one of the other electorates has the potential to be scavenged. It's a real jigsaw puzzle. You need to know the numbers. And the other thing is that um, if you do something like Alter Eden Monero, it has consequences all the way up to Cook in Sydney because they're all east of the mountains. Currently, the city of Whitlam includes part of the Illawarra and then jumps up over Macquarie Pass to include the Southern Islands. Now, it's what they're going to do with that, I don't know. But I just happen to think that on paper, it looks like they're going to abolish a, a Sydney seat. But the complexity of the country uh, redistribution makes it look very complex. I mean, Hume is probably the messiest seat we have now because on a map it looks contiguous, but actually when you apply the places where people actually live, you drive up the Hume Highway and the Hume Highway is actually the border of the electorate and there's a part there where there is no population. It's all been moved into Whitlam and then you go past Whitlam and you get back into Hume effectively if you're, depending on what side of the freeway you're driving on. But they sometimes they get stuck, so maybe they'll fix that. Yeah. There's also oddities like um, Albury and Wagga and a small amount of surrounding country areas could be put in one electorate. It used to be called Farrah years ago or Hume. It's been, it's been both actually. Very easy to do, but there's absolute objection about it all the, all the, all the time because Wagga and Albury don't mean the same thing. And the reason, if you have a look at the electoral boundaries, Farrah runs along the Murray River. And the argument is it's the part of the state that gets all its television from Melbourne. And this is their community of interest because nobody wants Wagga Wagga in the election. It's, it's, uh, oh, it's just um, some of the arguments that come up in this are always very amusing. But Farrah and Farrah just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, I mean, for a while there, he got his television from Adelaide and uh, Melbourne because it used to include Broken Hill. So just... I mean, that's the population trend, right, is the rural areas. Are, I mean, um, the topic of today is not the expansion of the parliament, and we don't, we don't think that will happen in this term. But when I went to Canberra to talk to parliament about that, I was surprised at the – I shouldn't have been, but I was surprised at the level of enthusiasm for the concept from the Nationals members who are on the committee. There were no Liberals there. The Liberals didn't bother to turn up, but the Nationals were very interested in how expanding the size of parliament would slow down and temporarily reverse that trend of country electorates getting bigger and bigger and bigger. When the parliament was last expanded in 1984, the Liberals voted against the expansion. It was the Nationals back Labor to get the, the expansion through. So that would be perfectly in line with what we've seen in the past. Um, but we should talk about Sydney. Well, yeah, we've gone through WA, we've gone through Victoria, we've started talking about New South Wales, but that's the most complex one. I know when I did my blog post on it at the start of the year, I, I went back and looked and realised that they had kind of made a mistake's a strong word, but they had overestimated the amount of population growth they would get in Sydney relative to the country over that time. And so they drew um, much less popular seats in Sydney than the country because of that. Um, but it, it does look like probably Sydney will be still projected to have faster population growth. But when I last looked at the numbers, Sydney was about 1.25 seats under quota for its current population. Yeah, and a seat will be abolished. As I said, I've made that caveat about the way they may do this. The problem is Sydney's got these geographical divides, the harbour, George's River, Port Hacking, and they tend to start drawing along the coast. I mean, nobody goes and draws Liverpool first. You start with McKellar, Warringah, Wentworth. You draw inwards from there. There's also a peculiar class divide in Sydney caused by a road called Windsor Road and Old Windsor Road. It's a dividing line between the hills, which is the last of the North Shore electorates, 
and the other the, that's the council and the other council on the other side of the road is Blacktown, which is traditionally a Labor voting electorate. And the state and federal level, that road, Windsor Road, old Windsor Road boundary, hasn't been crossed in decades. They also don't cross the Hawkesbury River. So you've got a squeeze between the harbour, Hawkesbury River and Windsor Road. In that part of Sydney, there is half a seat less than the number of seats. So it's highly likely that one of the Liberal seats will be abolished in that area or be forced to push south of Windsor Road. And just to clarify, that area you're talking about, it's kind of Mitchell, Barara, and everything east of there onto the North Shore, right? That northern peninsula of the North Shore is about half a seat under quota. And they all have to expand. Warringah will expand and McKellar will expand. It's the easiest to draw. It'll take some on Warringah. Warringah moves west, picks up parts of North Sydney. Do you abolish North Sydney or do you grow North Sydney northwards, taking parts of Bradfield? Bradfield pushes up towards Hornsby. What happens to Barara? I mean, Barara is it's a newer electorate. It's named geographically. It's Julian Lisa's seat. There's a strong possibility Barara could be abolished or the Liberal Party might try and abolish North Sydney and try and get the two independents in Warringah to North Sydney to run against each other. Um, that then flows you to Benelong and Parramatta. Parramatta, there's a strong chance Parramatta might be pushed south, which would help Andrew Charlton. But whatever you do with that then flows through to Parramatta, Greenway and Benelong, which are marginal Labor seats, or Greenway less so at the moment. But in abolishing a Liberal seat, one of those seats gets pulled up into Liberal voting North Shore areas and has consequences. That has consequences for Reed and everything else. Now, on the southern side, everything has to move west. Wentworth will pick up some Labor voting areas from Sydney. What will they do with Sydney? Um, there's a possibility they'll do what it used to have, which is the Sydney central area plus Balmain and Leichhardt, Grand Lamuse south. There's, every seat drifts west at some point. Some point they get to Fowler, which has no obvious geographic boundaries, is held by Dai Lee. Um, based on what sometimes happens in the past, I wouldn't mind betting that Labor Party tries to abolish Fowler. It would be an easy way to get rid of a few problems. But uh, where the other independents have more geographically obvious electors, Fowler, which is held by Dai Lee, has no obvious geography around it. It could be moved all over the place. So as the electorates in the east drift westwards, is somewhere in Western Sydney or on the North Shore Sea gets abolished. And um, MacArthur, which is down currently on the, on the edge of Sydney, is way over quota. And so there'll be a lot of squeezing in there. Another seat to watch is Hughes. Cook currently crosses the Georges River, and Cook's never crossed the Georges River in decades. If it goes back to being a Sutherland Shire seat, Hughes has to push into the western suburbs. Into Liverpool. It, yeah, either into where Banks is currently or towards Liverpool. And especially if Eden Monero has to lose areas to shore up Riverina and Farrah, Eden Monero would push north and it would push either uh, Whitlam up into the Southern Islands or it pushes Hughes into the western suburbs. There's a real complexity in trying to do this jigsaw puzzle. You can make some guesses sometimes by it's usually not worth looking at the quota of an individual seat, but you look at a region and you say how many voters are in that region. And, you know, the Illawarra is interesting because Illawarra slash Shoalhaven area is about two and a half seats worth, right? And so I remember when I was doing a state redistribution for the Greens about a decade ago, talking to the local group in that area and going, you need to push in one direction or the other. You know, you need to push south into Kiribadala or west into the Southern Highlands or north into the Southern Shire. You can't avoid all three. 
Like at some point, something's got to give. And there's there's a few of those kind of areas where, again, lots of physical barriers around Wollongong. It's not just a big flat plain that you can just draw in any way you want. When they first created the seat, uh, I can't remember the name of the seat. I think it was, I can't remember if it was MacArthur or not. But um, they came up with this argument to connect all the areas with coal mines. So it ran from the northern Illawarra through to Appen and around Camden. It was a great way to sort of create a labour seat in, in the area. Um, it's never reappeared since. And at the, the same redistributions had Gilmore running from the south coast to Goulburn. And that was abandoned in about 1990 and nobody's been near it again. But, I mean, there may be a few suggestions like that. But certainly there's been a tendency for the seat of Whitlam, or used to be known as Throsby, to push up and down from the southern highlands. But, you know, maybe that will be changed. But if they go back to being just the south coast seat, then again, Hughes moves into the western suburbs. And also, and I really have to stress this, they start drawing where there's more obvious places to draw electric. So they start in the corners of Sydney. They draw along the rivers. And then somewhere in Western Sydney or on the coast somewhere, you get these these oddities where they have to... And sometimes they can't get one community of interest for electric. You end up with more than one community of interest. They just connect two areas because in the end, that's what they have to do. The numbers are more important than anything else. Now, let's briefly touch on there's a process for this. There's a number of stages... They'll announce officially the redistribution started and publish the data. They will give people a chance to make suggestions. There'll be objections on the suggestions. So that's two rounds of public submissions. Then we'll get a first draft of an electoral map. There'll be a chance for comments on those, objections on those comments. So that's a third and a fourth round of public submissions. And then at the end, they will release a final map. Very occasionally, and we'll talk about this with the Northern Territory, they bring out a second draft and they start again, but that's very rare. But that's kind of the process, which I think probably, by my estimate, will conclude around the middle of 2024. Yeah, the Commission's given a slightly longer timetable, but I suspect they'll have that ready by August next year. The window for an election opens up between August 2024 and May 2025. I suspect the Commission will do what it can to try and sort that out and get that all organised before the boundaries have to be used. And before we move on from federal, I mean, this is sort of a question about both federal and state redistributions, but what's your process when you're trying to estimate what the political impact of these electorates are? Well, it depends. I mean, a federal election is a bit easier because the Electoral Commission releases data files of polling place data and which SA1 statistical area voters came from. So it's possible to take federal election results and transfer them to SA1, a statistical area. So when new boundaries are released, you can just accumulate the statistical areas from the data. That's not possible at most states because they don't generally release that data. So you just have to guesstimate. You look at the transfers of voters. You transfer polling places from the maps in the obvious area. The biggest difficulty is usually dealing with the declaration votes, pre-polls, postals, absence. You tend to have to apportion them. I tend to, at state level, try to weight that by area so that if you've got a Labor voting end of an electorate and a Liberal voting end of the electorate, if they're split into new electorates, you try and weight the postal and pre-poll votes by the fact that the areas vote differently. I've had this debate a number of times in South Australia where they used to draw boundaries based on this, and I used to get different estimates from the commissioners because I treated pre-poll and postal votes differently to them. But, I mean, it's a bit of a much and much. When you do a redistribution estimate, it's just an estimate. You're just trying to rank electorates. So you've got something to measure when you come to do your calculations. It's the best estimate. You can only ever have an estimate. 
And it's a margin of error, right? I mean, I, I saw someone with the WA redistribution quibbling with me that uh, William Bowes' estimate had Churchlands as a point one for the Liberal for Labor, and I had it as a point something for the Liberals, and it was tiny. And I was like, well, if a seat is that close, it's it's a statistical tie, right? If it's been properly redistributed, like we all roughly agreed that it had become a little bit more Liberal, but not by very much. And that's really all. Like I think sometimes we people can interpret them as having more precision because we give numbers to them, but they're not perfect. It's made worse by the Federal Election Commission publishing their estimates to two decimal places, which I think is a complete joke. <laughs> and in um, 2016, I think it was, they redrew Corail, and on the new boundaries it had a mar- it was a Liberal seat, and it came out with a Labor margin of 0.03%, which is like, you know, it's about 30 votes. And I rang the AEC and I said, can't you just flip those numbers? Why, why are you going to actually reallocate which party holds the seat when the margin's 0.03%? Oh, that's the numbers. I'm thinking, oh, well, you, know, it's, you can get hung up on this. And I mean, I've sometimes done redistribution estimates. And one of the hardest things to explain to people with a website and with election coverage is a notional seat. You've got a sitting Liberal member and it's become notional Labor. And a little trade secret, if I've done those calculations and come up with a margin of about 0.05% or something or other, I'll just alter 20 votes and leave it with the party that held it first because it's just easy to explain. And, you know, a difference of 0.1% in a margin is not going to interfere with your predictions in the next election. Um, these are estimates and there's there's nothing more irritating than having people say, how can you say that's a liberal gain when it has a liberal member? And you think, oh, God, here we go again, you know. <laughs> Well, my method is pretty, I think it's pretty similar to what you described in that I have to use a different method for federal and state because of that extra data that you get at federal and you don't get at state. And um, But I've noticed issues I often noticed were with the Cedar Higgins and McNamara when bits of Windsor would get moved and it would make the Liberal margin look a bit bigger and someone would correctly point out that that little bit that had been moved was very Labor and should have done the opposite thing. But... Sometimes, particularly when they're really small numbers, uh, it's hard to get it right, but you do your best. So while we're waiting for the federal redistributions to commence, we've got a number of state and territory redistribution processes which are much further advanced. We've got draft boundaries have now been published for the state electoral map in Western Australia and for the local assemblies for the ACT in the Northern Territory. Um, Probably the most interesting story, you touched on this before, Anthony, is the do-over in the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory Electoral Commission came out in early July and announced that so many electors had been added to the roles in, in specifically in remote NT electorates by the AEC in the lead up to the voice referendum that the entire first draft of their electoral map has basically had to be thrown out and they're starting again. It had quite kind of moved about a quarter of an electorate's quota from the city to the country. Have you ever seen anything like that before, Anthony? Not to the same scale, but it's common in the Northern Territory. I think the Northern Territory is the only commission when they do a redistribution, they don't have a fixed date for the enrolments. Is that between the first and second stage, they update the enrolments and see if they're matching. Because I've, I've, the previous redistribution, they had to do a bit of a change, again, because the enrolments altered. Look, it's been well known for a decade that there is severe under-enrollment in the Northern Territory. Um, and the AEC has now put more resources into trying to fix that problem in the Northern Territory. Um previous government, I think, just tended to let it drift a bit. And I think that's that's what you're seeing here. The Northern Territory redistribution will have to be significantly changed as a result. But, you know, they've abolished country seats in the Northern Territory in the past, even though they know the problem is under enrolment. 
And that is, that's one of the things to point out as well is when they're deciding how many seats a state gets, they use population estimates. But when they're drawing boundaries within a state, and I think this applies generally to state and federal territory, they have to use enrolment data because population, I mean, there might be a political principle involved as well, but it's just not practical to use population estimates at the local level, whereas electoral enrolment data is real and concrete. In other countries, they use the population. Australia is due to enrolment for many years, but the allocation of seats. Back in, I think, in 1990, WA gained a 14th seat. South Australia still had 13 because the population of WA was higher, but I think the enrolment for South Australia was higher than Western Australia. The use of population means states with lots of young people tend to end up with more seats than states with an older population. So South Australia tends to be disadvantaged by the allocation because there aren't a lot of young people in South Australia compared to some other states. But it's only a minor thing. And just as a little um, sidelight, we're talking about Indigenous referendums. Back in 1961, the apportionment introduced that year abolished a seat in Western Australia and Queensland. Queensland is a bit more doubtful, but Western Australia was unambiguously caused by the fact that in 1961 we still didn't count Indigenous Australians in the census. And so they're excluded from the formula to allocate seats to states. That redistribution afterwards was then later rejected, something that can no longer be allowed under a high court ruling. But that was one of the reasons that led to the holding of the referendum in 67, is that particularly the country party were very upset that why were we counting migrants in the population but we couldn't count Indigenous people? And they were concerned that it was altering the facts. So a little sidelight, there were other reasons for that Indigenous referendum in 1967, but one of them was also to fix this issue with the population estimates. We'll see what happens. I mean, it is a practical example of, I think sometimes when I'm trying to explain to people why this process is important, is power is meant to be distributed amongst the population. And when the population moves and changes, you need to change the boundaries because that is the practical effect of, you know, populations moving into the suburbs or in this case moving into regional NT will mean that the Northern Territory Assembly will be less dominated by Darwin than it would have otherwise been because there might be half a seat less in Darwin than there was before as a consequence of this change. It must be said um, Western Australia and Queensland in their state redistribution processes have a procedure which allows um, electorates which are a huge size to be set under quota. Um, but it's a mathematical process. It's not like it used to happen in the 70s and 80s in Queensland where they drew regional boundaries and allocated seats to the regions. In both of those states, electorates over 100,000 square kilometres in area have sort of phantom electors created, which allows their enrolment to be under just to control the size of the electorate because otherwise some of these electorates would just be massive. So there is an attempt mathematically in those two states to deal with it, um, but it's not used anywhere else. Since you mentioned Western Australia, there's been a state redistribution in Western Australia that's just happened in uh, late July. It's the first time that they haven't had to draw upper house boundaries because there are no upper house regions anymore. And what has happened is there'll be one less regional seat. The seat of Northwest Central was basically abolished. It was merged with one of its neighbours and there'll be one more seat in Perth. It's interesting that um, Western Australia has always had regions. The regions recently abolished have been there since 1989. And since 1989 in drawing boundaries, no electorate had crossed the metropolitan boundary. 
this redistribution is the first time that boundary has been crossed because that boundary electorally doesn't exist anymore. So there's a new seat called Secret Harbour, which crosses between Perth and Mandurah, where previously that boundary has been inviolate. You couldn't cross that boundary, although there's a, someone in WA who will always tell me they were allowed to cross it, but they never did, is, is the main point I'd make. And also, with that abolition of that seat of Northwest Central and the creation in Midwest, there used to be a boundary there between the agricultural region in the mining and pastoral region. So the abolition of that boundary has immediately freed up the way they can draw boundaries. So the redistribution has probably favoured Labor slightly, but, I mean, it's a bit ridiculous when you've got such a one-sided parliament anyway to talk about advantage or not. But I think the main interest to me has been that the abolition of the Legislative Council regions has freed up the commissioners to pay more attention to drawing boundaries where population exists. I think there might be some changes to those draft boundaries. There's a couple of very odd electorates um, Hillary's and Padbury, which uh, you've seen, most of the audience haven't. Very strange north-south aligned electorates in an area where they've never been before. Darling Range is still an electorate with no obvious centre. There's a few things like that. But I think having got rid of those regional boundaries, there's a bit more ability for the commissioners to make more sensible boundaries than anyone who's familiar with WA electoral boundaries. There used to always be one electorate which had to straddle the edge of the metropolitan area and connected areas with absolutely no connection whatsoever because they weren't allowed to cross the metropolitan boundary at the time. So hopefully that doesn't happen again. But I think there might be some changes to the draft boundaries, not that the political impact's that major. Well, I was going to ask about that because the last election, Labor won 53 out of 59 seats. We expect there to be a big swing back towards the middle. How big, we don't know. Um, It does make it harder to know what will happen because we can make estimates of the margins. But in the end, you kind of have to, there will be a big swing, but we don't really know where that swing will be. It probably won't be uniform. There might be places where the swing's 5% and other places where the swing's 20%. And uh, and also, uh, particularly with WA, I mean, the difficulty of estimating redistribution, um, on election night in 2021, there was only 37% of the vote counted. Fortunately, the result was very clear, but they just couldn't count the pre-polls and postals. Basically, 55 to 60% of the vote was pre-polls and postals. They're very difficult to try and figure out what to do within a redistribution. You do your best. But, I mean, seriously, it's getting harder and harder to to do sensible estimates because of the sheer volume of pre-poll votes. Um, I'm um, appearing before the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters in Victoria, and they have a dog's breakfast with the way they collect pre-poll votes and report them. Um, there are pre-poll centres, but they don't report them individually, and you, um, you don't know where the votes have come from. It's all very complex, and uh, I'm making some suggestions on how they can count their votes differently using methods in other states. But Victoria's it's got the highest pre-poll generally around the country, and it really does impact when you try and do redistribution. And the fact that you just get one total for pre-polls is making election night harder and harder to actually do. I was around in 1993, 1990, when they started to report polling places for the first time, in 93 when they started to do preference counts for the first time. And suddenly, instead of this black box of numbers where you didn't know they were from, you knew where they were from, and suddenly you could keep up with the party scrutineers who were relying on telephones. That's become harder and harder to do because you've got no idea where the pre-polls are coming from. Or in the case of New South Wales, the state election, the pre-polls and postals and absence was a completely different trend compared to 2019, compared to how the polling places changed between the two elections. And I, amongst many others, over-predicted Labor's seats, not really understanding how different the trend would be in the post-election day votes. It was quite remarkable that it happened. And there's a 
I've written about it. There's a whole bunch of reasons for it. But the more and more pre-poll votes you get and the bigger – we've all used this what's called matched polling place analysis to make election night predictions. You compare like with like and use the swing to project their outcome. But the basis on that is that while polling place two-party preferreds are correlated with booth size, so early reporting small booths are biased compared to the final result, is that – Correlation traditionally does not exist between swing and polling place size. So your variance in results is smaller when you operate on the swing than when you operate on the two-party preferred vote. That's why everybody uses matched analysis. It's got less bias and smaller variance, so it's a better estimate. But the idea that they're not correlated with booth size has been destroyed by the size of pre-poll voting. Um, because suddenly you're finding that large pre-poll votes coming in later in the evening are behaving differently from the smaller polling places that come earlier and you get a different swing. So suddenly our matched polling place method is not as accurate as it used to be because at the end of the night you're going to get this vast number of votes that might or might not behave differently. In the case of Victoria, they behave exactly like the polling places, but in New South Wales they didn't. And so you don't know what trend you're going to get. And you can imagine a world where there was dozens of pre-poll centres and they were all nice and small and they all reported separately and they came in earlier in the night and maybe that wouldn't be a problem. But it is partly because they're these big blocks, right, and an enormous quantity gets dumped in one go because they act different. Like if they were coming in steadily alongside the election day ones, it wouldn't be a problem if the pre-polls acted one way and the election day votes acted another. But it is a problem that make, makes things hard. I, I struggle I struggle to match up my political principles of thinking it's good that people have all this convenience, but it does make um, in, it makes your job harder in terms of election nights and when I, when I work with that data as well. It has other oddities. Giant pre-poll votes, and this came up in Victoria, the sheer size of the pre-poll votes, if you're counting 20,000 votes, a 1% error is 200 votes. If you're counting 2,000, it's 20. So if you make an error with pre-polls, you get a big difference. And so the seat of Pakenham at the state election in Victoria, there was an error discovered on the check count, but it wasn't corrected in the indicative preference count and um you've you've loaded the victorian data and you run into the same problem they're two candidate preferred and the first preferences do not add up together they do not match and it's because of the counting procedures i've made some suggestions to the victorian parliamentary committee on that issue yeah they don't come back and fix those mistakes later it's an issue to do with the way their computer system and management system works and they're well aware of it and I've had long discussions with them before the last election and they tried to provide us better information on pre-poll voting but in the end they couldn't rewrite their software to do it. They've got four years now to do it. So there's a, a number of things in that area which uh, most you've got to be really digging in the entrails to find out what's going on there but I'm certainly I'm taking the opportunity of this Electoral Matters Committee inquiry to try and point out a number of issues in this area. Now, the ACT has had a redistribution. It's been a minor one. We're, we're going to get the final version soon. Um, I think the main thing to note there, they're less dramatic when you have multi-member districts anyway, but generally the trend is the population in the north and in the city is growing faster, that Canberra is densifying and so those outer suburban areas aren't growing as quickly as they might, might have once done. And the, the knock-on effect from that is that those, those outer suburban Southern electorates like Brindabella are having to grow and cover more territory to meet the quota. Look, the ACT is a relatively homogenous territory compared to other states. It is multi-member. 
And <laughs> I wish you luck um, running a projection of the estimated margin given 75% of people voted electronically last time. Uh, admittedly, you've got the counting centres for that, but it does does make it a little difficult to deal with sometimes. And again, these are just estimates and they're attempts. You know, um, I tried to use match polling place analysis for the ACT in the past. It's a bit of a waste of time because you've got two or three polling places and then you've got enough votes to sample it all out. Plus in the ACT, they just dump all the um, electronic votes at the start of the night and the rest of the evening is just filling in the pieces. And um, I'm going to mention quickly that there's also a bunch of local government wards that are getting redrawn. Um, I'm going to come back to these on other topics. There's in Victoria, legislation in 2020 kind of forced all the big rural cities and most of Melbourne's councils to move to single member wards. So that process is happening now that they're consulting on various maps, but it's a consultation where the rules have kind of been imposed to change them anyway, regardless. So that's happening right now. And I think my next podcast, we're going to touch on that. And that's reversing two decades of shifting towards those wards being more proportional. New South Wales, there's also councils are currently reviewing their ward boundaries. So that's the thing where you've got to keep kind of keep an eye on council minutes to know where they're happening. And I haven't had, quite had the time to keep up with that. But particularly outer suburban council wards are having to be redrawn where there's been big population changes. An advantage of multi-member wards is that you don't have to do as many redistributions. If single member wards, if one ward gets a big population growth, you have to change all the boundaries. It's, it's a tedious process. It's an expensive process to do redistributions as well. The oddity in New South Wales is it didn't used to apply under proportional representation in Victoria. But if New South Wales either has whole of council wards or if they're divided into wards, every ward must elect the same number of members, um, which is a principle of PR, which was somehow lost in Victoria in the old days. You sometimes get jiggery-pokery. I know um, Marrickville Council, where, which no longer exists, but is where I live, the Labor Party at one stage redrew four three-person wards into three four-person wards because they thought they'd have a better chance of getting six elected. And later on, when Labor lost control of the council, the wards were put back to four three-person wards because it's, it's, it's if, if you read up on Irish politics, you'll understand the, the politics of three, four and five member wards. But uh, there has been some funny games on that in the past. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things you do see when you look at the, I haven't really gotten to the point of looking at actual boundaries being changed, but just looking at councils that need to have their boundaries changed. You can have established suburban councils where even if there's population growth, it's distributed reasonably evenly. And so it's not an issue and those wards are largely fine. Um, but then the councils that are affected are the Hills, Blacktown, Camden, and interestingly, Parramatta that kind of has the Olympic Park area is sort of a more inner urban version of that outer suburban population growth where most of the housing is happening in one part of the council. And so basically every election they've got to redistribute because that one ward just shoots ahead of all the others in terms of population. And so those ones are going to have to get redrawn again and again. But in those more, you know, inner west, for example, where you live, you know, there's population growth happening there, but it is spread around in a way that means it doesn't really cause problems for water quality. Yeah, and uh, although <laughs> in the West Council's trying to convince somebody to pay them, pay for their ability to separate the council into three, and I don't think anyone's going to pop the money for that. So <laughs> I certainly don't think the uh, people who pay rates want it to happen. That is a whole other episode, Anthony. 
And I should probably mention as well, I'm trying to get my head around Western Australia's councils. A bunch of them have had their wards abolished. Uh, it is taking quite a long time to get all the data together, but at some point I will get my head around that as well. They're about to have an election where they've reintroduced um, preferential voting and proportional representation after the Labor government got rid of first past the post. But I don't really have my head around that yet, so I can't really go into that, but that will be coming up at some point. Just looking at the WA redistribution, some of their rural councils are just tiny. They are tiny <laughs> compared to other states. Yeah, there was something I think around Kimberley where an enormous area was moved into another electorate, I think into Kimberley, and it had practically no impact because there was like a couple of dozen people who lived in that area or something. You know, there's some of this. Even funnier is that um, they split two councils between Kimberley and Kalgoorlie, but all the population of those councils was in the area they moved into Kalgoorlie is that the northern part that went into Kimberley had nobody registered. They just moved the boundary to a, a, a line of latitude because it increased the size of the electorate and therefore allowed Kimberley to have fewer voters in it. So in, there are two changes in WA which are just movement of areas with nobody living there just to change the enrolment requirement for the seat. This is this large district allowance. So it's a, a little of a peculiarity of WA. That reminded me, actually, I think it was in my Northern Territory redistribution, I had a bug in my code because the code assumed that there was always at least one booth in an electorate and there was a seat that had no booths at all. And it just got stuck and it broke. And I basically had to work out how to, I think I had to create a dummy booth or something. I had to do something to make it work. But these, these rules you apply that you think will apply universally and then there's always exceptions. Wait till you come across an uncontested electorate. Well, we don't, we don't really have to worry about those anymore. Maybe, maybe that won't always be the case. People occasionally quote back two-party preferreds back 50, 60, 70, 80 years. If you go back and look at the source for all that data pre-1970, there were so many uncontested electorates or electorates where not both parties didn't contest. They used to invent a two-party preferred. And I know somebody always raised with me that the Labor primary vote was higher at a South Australian election than two-party preferred and had to explain to them the two-party preferreds were estimates for all electorates and the statewide figures excluded the uh, uncontested electorates. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Anthony, for joining me. Thank you very much. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 